the number one food is protein, period. If you just prioritize protein, that's probably the best thing you can do for insulin resistance. Not only is it going to slow the kind of blood sugar response, it's also just flat out good for our tissues. It's good for our muscle cells, which is going to be ultimately what allows us to suck up glucose in the first place. Resetters, Dr. Mindy here, and I am on a mission to teach you just how powerful your body was built to be. This podcast is about giving you the power back and helping you believe in yourself again. Let's jump in. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you a fellow YouTuber, Thomas Daylauer. Now, if you haven't checked out Thomas's YouTube page, you are missing out. So I want to start off by saying, please go look at his YouTube page. As somebody who puts YouTube videos together, I have such a deep appreciation for the thoroughness in which Thomas puts his videos together. He is incredible at highlighting the science. He's incredible at giving you very clear steps. I'm just impressed with him as a fellow YouTuber. But what you're going to also hopefully be impressed with in this discussion is I wanted to take a topic that has, we have talked about a lot on this podcast and many of you are familiar with, and I wanted to give it a new slant. So we're talking insulin resistance, but from a different angle. So let me tell you what we went through. We started with what are the signs of insulin resistance that people may not know? And wow, is that part of the conversation going to blow you away? Because we always think of insulin resistance as being weight gain or not having enough energy, or maybe you get a, a, a diagnosis of diabetes from your doctor, but wait till you hear what Thomas has to say about other things that tell us we're insulin resistant. Then I wanted to move into fasting, of course. I mean, you, you're, we've got a topic of insulin resistance and two fasting experts. I could not let that uh, part of the conversation not uh, be highlighted. So we talked about length of fast. So many of you want to know what fasting length is perfect for certain conditions. So I asked Thomas, what's the best fasting length for insulin resistance? And you're going to hear what it is. Pretty interesting. Um, definitely a different slant on length fast. So I'm excited for you all to hear that. Then we went into food. Um, and instead of taking insulin resistance from the angle of what foods to avoid, I wanted him to highlight what foods to add in. And that is where it got really exciting. So he really dove into quality of food, which macro is the most important. Um, and he takes one of the macros that we often talk about and he gave it a new slant. So I'm not going to give that away, but that was really good. And then we went into exercise. Thomas has a whole new channel, um, YouTube channel on uh, exercise that's really interesting. So we talked about how you should be exercising. What should you be eating before exercise or after exercise or during, during exercise? He went into that. And then the last thing we talked about were biohacks for insulin resistance. And he has some really good ones. So I, I, I could go on and on about this conversation. It takes a lot to intellectually stimulate me on the topic of insulin resistance. I've had so many conversations with so many experts, and I was literally at the edge of my seat with this conversation. And so I'm so excited to bring it to you guys. I hope it takes your knowledge of keto, fasting, insulin resistance, working out, biohacking, all the things that we talk about here to a whole new level. So Thomas Daylauer, let me know what you think. Leave a review if you really resonate with this uh, episode. And of course, as always, share it out into the world. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I loved uh, talking to him. It's such a cool conversation. Excited for you to, to listen in. Hey, Resetters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, 
My Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. For starters... It's really fun to have you on my podcast. I have to say, even though YouTube is kind of both of our big platforms, it's really fun to have you here in a podcast setting. So thank you for joining me. You bet. So here's what I think would be really helpful for people is I really want to dive into the nuance of insulin. So one thing that I feel like is the world understands that insulin resistance causes diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Um, We also know when I can't lose weight, I must be insulin resistant. But outside of that, or maybe I know if I go to my doctor's office and my hemoglobin A1C is high, outside of that, I feel like we're insulin resistant illiterate. Like we don't understand what exactly it is. So can you talk about what some of the signs are? Let's start there. How would I know that I'm insulin resistant outside of those things that I just mentioned? Yeah. Well, first off, I mean, with insulin resistance in the first place, it's nebulous territory because people want to kind of pick it apart as like, okay, well, we can't really talk about reducing insulin. We can't do because insulin is important and we need it and yada, yada. But when you look at the fact that, you know, like 40% of adults are at least 40% of adults are insulin resistant. So that's, that tells us there's a lot going on. There's probably a larger number than that. And it is something. So in a healthy individual, like insulin management isn't as important of a thing, but the problem is that the lion's share of people are not healthy individuals. So it does become very important. Um, and yeah, people think insulin resistance, they go, okay, well, I just have to measure my glucose and then just have to look at that. And even that can give you really skewed results because that's not, you're not measuring your insulin, right? We, like, you, might, you might eat some carbohydrates, you might eat some potatoes and then measure your glucose and your glucose goes to 160 and 180 and you think you're insulin resistant when in reality, if you were to measure two hours later and everything went back down, your body essentially did what it's supposed to do, right? right. So it's not just a, and that's where people think, okay, insulin resistance and high blood glucose, although they do go hand in hand, they're not the same thing. They're not the exact same thing. And one of the first ones that like, I want to talk about specifically is like, is extreme hunger. Like it just yes. flat out. Like if you wake up in the morning and you are really, really hungry, I mean, it is a very simple thing that your body is neglecting fuel. It's not, or it's avoiding fuel because it can't receive the fuel, right? So it makes sense that you would be very, very hungry. And there's really just interesting research about how insulin plays a role with the brain. And I talked about this recently in a video, so it's very fresh in my mind. Uh, There was a study where they gave subjects uh, intranasal insulin. And if you give someone intranasal insulin, it can cross the blood-brain barrier 
pretty quick and they can do that stuff. So you have half the subjects a placebo, half the subjects intranasal insulin. And then they did an fMRI scan where they looked at their brain activity. And they found that the subjects that received insulin, that the insulin actually traveled to the brain, they ended up having better connectivity between the brain and the body and ultimately ended up having a better connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampal region. And essentially what that is saying is that if insulin actually gets where it's supposed to go and gets to the brain and gets into the cells in the brain, it can actually impact in a very positive way our satiety and how we actually crave food. But when we are insulin resistant, it goes beyond just what's happening in the periphery, like where our cells aren't getting nutrients. It literally, like if the insulin is not reaching its target properly and we're not even getting insulin in the brain, we could argue that we're, it's altering our satiety cues. Um, especially in the morning because most people are, you know, they haven't been eating all night. So they're already waking up. They're in a fasted state and they're going to be more hungry. So it just makes sense that that would be exacerbated in someone that's insulin resistant. And it's such a simple thing that, you know, it gets often overlooked. So are you saying then, and this is a key point that I could love the number on the scale. I could be the thinnest person in the world, but if, I'm hungry all day. I can't go without food. That could be the beginning signs of insulin resistance. In a lot of ways, yes. Yeah, because it's, you know, weight is not always a direct reflection, right? Whether you're underweight or overweight. I don't want to say that, you know, being overweight is healthy, but there are people that are overweight that are not insulin resistant, right? Like adipose tissue in and of itself is sort of a master regulator of a lot of things and has its own set of problems, but it doesn't necessarily constitute an insulin resistance issue and vice versa, right? Like if so, if you're, but if you're also satiated or you're not that hungry all the time, like sometimes that can be a late stage insulin resistance issue. And the reason that I mentioned that is that imagine this, imagine you have gone so long with your body not recognizing glucose very well. Okay. And this has happened for years and it went unrecognized. Well, to a, at a certain point, your body has no choice but to upregulate fatty acid oxidation. Mm-hmm. It has no choice because it's been deprived of fuel. So in an advanced stage of insulin resistance, kind of moving towards diabetes, this happens. Like you can actually see where in diabetes, like a lot of times they actually increase the rate of fat oxidation because their body is forced to have to use another substrate. So wow. the reason I mentioned that is like that, that can arguably be good for people with weight, you know, for weight loss, but it's not exactly the way you want to go for it. Right. It's not, right. you don't want to, I want to become diabetic so that my body oxidizes fat. That's not the goal. Right. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing. So usually when you start feeling the lack of hunger, a lot of times you notice that happen with like a type one diabetic where it's a very extreme situation, right? Where they're, uh, no insulin, they need artificial insulin or exogenous insulin and, they get to a point, but they don't know it yet, right? It's like I have a, a family member that didn't realize they were type 1 diabetic until they're in their mid-20s and, yeah, couldn't put on weight, right? It was like the body is neglecting glucose. So it's one of those things to really pay attention to. Yeah, and we're back at that conversation of like it's the balance, right? And we, we've yep. made health black and white. You know, when this number shows up on your cholesterol, you're healthy. When this number shows up on hemoglobin A1C, you're diabetic, Like we make it too linear, but what I hear you saying is too much hunger, not enough hunger. You're now tipping the scales where you may be in insulin resistance land. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, you know, you, it's a very fine line, right? But it's a, I always say it's a, it's a fine line, but it's a very bold line at the same time. It's like, once you cross that line, it's, uh, you know, it's very hard to get back. And another thing that happens that we don't always think about is, greasy skin. Okay. Mm. Now there's a lot of evidence that suggests that like kind of the, the patchy weird red skin that you see in people that are diabetic, that makes a lot of sense. But what about like earlier stages, like in the morning? Okay. We all have woken up where we've felt like our skin is greasy or oily. And sometimes we can equate it to certain things, but if it starts becoming something that's happening every day and you're an adult and you're starting to get like greasy skin and acne, one of the things we have to look at is that when insulin is high. Like it's not actually, it's being produced, but it's circulating. You have high circulating insulin. Insulin is actually going to promote the production of androgens. Okay. So Mm. 
and androgens alone are going to make you make your skin greasy, things like that. I want you to think, you know, think of a kid that is going through puberty, a 12 year old boy or a 13 year old boy, all of a sudden skin's getting greasy and he's got an acne popping up everywhere. Then his hormones are raging, right? Okay. Well, insulin, when it's in its normal values, when it's spiking, it can be a very positive anabolic thing, right? There's a reason why in the bodybuilding community, they want insulin to be spiked for a certain level, right? In fact, even in the extreme bodybuilding cases, people will literally take exogenous insulin. They will use insulin to try to grow muscle. Right. Not a healthy thing to do. Don't recommend it. Yes. But the point is that it will grow muscle because it's very anabolic and it will also stimulate androgen production. But you don't want this happening, <laughs> A, if you're not a bodybuilder, B, if you are just a regular person trying to live your life and it could be a very clear indicator. So what ends up happening as far as the greasy skin is concerned is it ends up becoming just a result of those androgens. But additionally, when IGF is also elevated as a result of insulin, so IGF is insulin-like growth factor. When IGF gets elevated, this is a very pro-growth thing, which can be good for recovery. But as we get older, it's not necessarily something we want circulating at high levels. That happens, but additionally, what has been demonstrated to happen is with hyperinsulinemia, you also end up having a decrease in the IGF binding protein. So you have higher levels of circulating IGF with less places for that IGF to go. Now, when this happens, it sort of deforms and throws a wrench in sort of the proliferation and the apoptosis of various keratinocytes, so the skin cells. And when that happens, you have skin cells that are dying when they shouldn't die, skin cells that are growing when they shouldn't grow, and you have this imbalance. And that itself is going to lead to greasy skin and acne and clogged pores. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's wild, but you wouldn't associate greasy skin with it. But if you start noticing it happening, it doesn't mean you're insulin resistant, but it means like, you know what? These things are starting to stack up I should probably look deeper into this and do like a HOMA IR test and really figure this out. So interesting. So, okay, if you take this 17-year-old boy who's got packed with acne, is there an insulin-resistant part to that? No, because that's usually going to be – well, that's a good question. I don't know entirely, right? I'm sure there is probably some links to that. Because when you look at, you know, younger individuals, like and what they're eating these days, I'm sure there is some link to that, right? I could yeah. probably, but correlation doesn't equal causation. So I can't say with certainty, but usually like you're having just big pulses of androgenic compounds and essentially big pulses of testosterone and other androgens. So with that, it's a direct correlation, less so with the insulin. I would imagine, however, that if a kid is insulin resistant and they are also going through puberty, it would make sense in theory that it would exacerbate that issue and possibly yeah. make acne worse, right? So it's uh, it's a strong theory that probably st stands up. You know, uh, my son, he turns 20 next week and he's barely had a pimple on his face his whole life. And I've tried to figure out what it is. Like, why is that? I mean, he's eaten obviously really clean in our home, but I, I, he's not, he doesn't eat clean outside of my home. So, uh, so it's just an interesting, I'd never really thought of that correlation. And then we do know that like PCOS, so women who have PCOS that now start to get hair on their face, that there's an insulin resistant piece to that. So could yeah. we flip it and even say the 30, you know, the 30 year old woman who maybe it wasn't diagnosed with PCOS, but all of a sudden knows, notices when she goes in to get her eyebrows done that she needs to maybe get her mustache done. Yeah. Uh, is, is that a potential sign of the beginnings of insulin resistance? So it's, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I, I filmed some content surrounding this whole topic not that long ago, which is why it's probably so even the studies are fresh in my mind. And in the day that I filmed this, I went to the grocery store and I, no offense to the lady, I saw a woman with a full fledged beard, right. And like a full fledged, like goatee. And I'm sure she's a nice person. And I, but it, it was like, I looked at her and I'm like, wow. wow, thinking about what I just talked about, I tried to connect that dot too, right. Now, not necessarily with PCOS, she was an older woman, but I'm like, there clearly is some androgenic issue going on there where she's producing male hormones to a certain degree. Right. At her age, she was an older person, probably in her 60s. There could be a number of different cattywampus hormone things that are the result of that, but it did get me thinking about just this very thing. And like with PCOS, it's such a strong interplay between the hormones and insulin resistance it would make sense that you also see, you know, with PCOS, you see these instances of patchy little facial hair, things like that. It does add up, right? Because they're somewhere along the line, these hormones are getting skewed. And again, 
if insulin resistance is the cause of it, that would make sense because there's so many other things that add up. Again, we can't say with 100% certainty, obviously, but we do have to look at all these different correlative pieces and sort of generate our own hypothesis with this. And especially when it's something that's so easy to potentially course correct, Yeah. then I, I feel comfortable saying that. Yeah. And I think what, all, what we also need are indicators like the symptoms we're talking about, because, you know, people are stepping into their, their doctor's office maybe once a year yeah. and getting this, this blood evaluation. If they don't, if their hemoglobin A1C, their fasting insulin, fasting glucose is off, there's going to be a recommendation and then they're not going to get checked for another year. Exactly. Yep. So we need more of this stuff. What, what do you think of like eyesight? So we have the most amount of mitochondria in our eyes. And we know yep. that diabetics, that's one thing that happens when they become insulin resistant. Could we look at changes in eyesight, uh, uh, light sensitivity, uh, things like that as signs of insulin, beginning insulin resistance? I, I strongly believe that you could. Uh, and there was some data that kind of looked at this where it was like, uh, I can't remember the actual specifics of it, but essentially it's like, okay, if you took a look at people that were diabetic versus insulin resistant and they kind of measured the blurred vision, they measured kind of the issues with the eyes in general, uh, it wasn't really that detectable of a difference. But then when they actually dug deeper and they sort of retroactively like kind of algorithmically looked at the data, they're like, okay, wait a minute. We could actually recognize that there are signs of insulin resistance as far as their vision is concerned that is not necessarily detectable through their eyesight, but by looking at actual data and looking at like the eye itself. Now, with that, I do think as far as light sensitivity and things like that are concerned, like if I go and I have a bunch of sugar, which isn't very often, and I go and I walk outside, I feel like I have a hard time even adjusting to the light. I feel like everything is messed up. Everything is out of whack. And it does make sense, right? Like if even from a, just a, a very acute standpoint, I think a like super high spike, acute spike in glucose for a period of time probably does impact eyesight, right? Like those capillaries are very easy to kind of jack up. And when yeah. you end up having chronically high levels, oops, there's that again. <laughs> it's the same car. <laughs> yep, there it stopped already. Okay. So if you have, you know, chronically high levels of glucose, then obviously advanced glycation in products, all this stuff can affect the eyes. As far as hyperinsulinemia and high levels of insulin, that I don't know. So we know glucose, obviously, if glucose is high, that can affect vision. I do think that it's, again, one of these things where, although we can't say with certainty, if you were to start keeping a tally of these things that we do know are correlative, I think it helps you because. The problem is like, if I were to walk into my doctor's office right now and say, I really want to get like a HOMA IR test. I want you to check me for insulin resistance. They probably won't. And I wouldn't have a, wouldn't really be able to get insurance to cover it. So I'd be forced to go out of pocket and do that, which is whatever. But at the end of the day, for a lot of people, that's very frustrating. And the medical system is difficult to navigate to begin with. So it's like you, it does kind of come back to you. So although I have hesitation saying, does this yes, yes mean you're insulin resistant? I feel comfortable saying, at least saying it, all these correlative aspects stack up. And if you keep a tally of them and you've got seven out of eight of them or nine out of 10 of them, plus your glucose is high and looking at the statistics, it's probably a decent chance that yes, you have insulin resistance. Yeah. Yeah. It's so well said. What, what about now you got me thinking of all the other symptoms that people have that we dismiss that could be insulin resistance. What about cavities? Do we have That's any an interesting. information well, on that? I don't, that's not my wheelhouse for sure. But again, with like speculative, yeah. like if you're looking at a blood flow, I mean, that's going to be a big piece too. We don't really think about like our gum health. We don't think about that. And, you know, there's evidence that high blood sugar, pale, pasty gums, right? Yeah. And gum, gums that bleed easily. So all this stuff adds up. And when you look at even just the relationship between like when people are sick in general, it manifests in short of their gum and teeth health. Yeah. And when your glucose levels are chronically high and everything is kind of at that level, then yeah, it would make sense that you're unable to repair. You're unable, you're sort of your ion transport, your ability, ability to sort of properly, properly mineralize and have calcium form where it's supposed to form to keep your teeth strong. Um, I know there are some links with osteoporosis and insulin resistance. So when you start looking at that again, osteoporosis we're not really looking at our bones every day, but we are looking at our teeth every day. 
but no one's necessarily talking about the relationship between teeth and insulin resistance yep. when they are in fact a bone. And if you have osteoporosis and your bones are brittle, there's a good chance you're going to have porous, brittle teeth too, right? Yeah. I mean, and this is why I bring it up is like when you start to, to break down all the things that could be, have a root cause of insulin resistance, you almost, you almost could tie everything to it. And yeah. part of what like got my brain thinking about that was, I don't know about you, but during COVID, when we first went into quarantine, I was like, at first I thought, oh my gosh, everybody's going to take care of their health. Then I was like, okay, nobody's taking care of the health. They're just sitting at home and eating. And I, and you could see that there was this connection between metabolic syndrome and, and immunity. So could we see, and then you started to see that so many people that were infected with COVID and had either died or had really bad symptoms had some form of prediabetes or diabetes. Could we look at immunity and immune function being, uh, and poor immune function being connected to insulin resistance? I think as far as inflammatory response is concerned, there's definitely a correlation there, right? There's probably more than a correlation because one thing that is pretty well documented is the interplay between inflammation and, of course, insulin resistance in the first place, right? Yeah. So, and that doesn't necessarily have to do with high levels of glucose. That just has to do with sort of the inflammatory, like sort of IL-6, TNF, alpha that kind of elevates when you're hyperinsulinemic. So with that, if inflammation is elevated and your immune system is activated to a certain degree, then you're kind of like chronically having this undulating like immune system activity, which is not exactly a good thing, right? You don't right. want to have this white blood cells and, and you don't want to have a low scale attack or a low grade attack happening all the time. And then it's perpetual. And then it kind of goes into its vicious cycle because then you have an inflammatory response which sort of, I kind of liken it to almost like static. It's like the cells can't communicate properly. They can't receive the signal from insulin. They can't dock in the insulin receptor properly because you have so much of this inflammatory storm going on. Yeah. So of course, it makes logical sense that your immune system would be suppressed as a result. So when you kind of look at illness and metabolic syndrome in the first place, yeah, I mean, that's kind of your first line of defense. And I think, you know, we think metabolism, we think, oh, this is what's responsible for me gaining and losing weight. I mean, the metabolism is, is every energy dynamic in our body. So yeah. it's the equation of taking energy from food and ultimately creating energy for our body and producing ATP. And if that is deranged in one way, it's going to have a trickle down effect across all kinds of systems. Yeah. And now you've even got me thinking like people who get injured, like from working out and they can't seem to repair from that. Like you start to correlate when you look at it from that inflammatory standpoint. I mean, it's almost like it's, you can correlate almost everything to it. So um, yeah, it's so fascinating. My other interesting I, that I don't know if you and I chatted about this, but um, I brought Annette Boz onto my podcast, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Dr. Boz. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, she's a big believer in hemoglobin A1C and that if it's over five, that you're now insulin resistant and it's affecting oxygen flow to your cells. So everything from brain cognition to muscle repair to energy is going to be affected. But she really says it from the standpoint of its oxygen, its lack of oxygen, because all that glucose gums up the red blood cells and those red blood cells are moving oxygen to your tissues to keep them healthy. Have you heard that? And do you have any, any thoughts on that? That's interesting. I mean, that has some merit to it for sure. I think the caveat with that would be if you're a, a very active person, like a really active person, um, I don't think it's as big of a deal to have over a five HbA1c because mm. you're just the, the amount of circulating glucose it, you, that can reflect in your HbA1c if you're a really active person and you're someone that right. consumes a fair amount of carbohydrates, but you're also active. So I, I there's that's the, with that caveat it does make sense as far as the oxygenation piece is concerned i think that you know with that like there's kind of these two pieces that we have to look at metabolism in general probably more than that but realistically you've got fuel getting into the cell glucose fat getting into the cell whatever okay fuel substrates but oxygen is also fuel too right so we have yeah. oxidative phosphorylation we have uh, we require oxygen uh, for any kind of aerobic activity and to a certain degree you know even though anaerobic is literally without oxygen i mean for the, un the tasks that are going on sort of underneath that, the baseline tasks, though it's still involving aerobic metabolism. So if you have poor ox you know, oxygenation, then that's not going to work very well. 
I don't know. I'm sure there is some literature out there somewhere about sort of uh, circulating glucose gumming up that ability. I'm not aware of it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist because that's a really strong theory. It makes sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. And I'd never really thought about it, but you actually add another layer to it. You're right. If you're moving around, you're going to be delivering more oxygen to tissue anyways. So yeah, um, and we also have to think about like physiological insulin resistance because that's kind of where I look at things too. Because yeah. if, let's say if you're low carb, becoming insulin resistant is a protective mechanism by reallocating glucose to go to the brain. Why would your body give your cells glucose if it doesn't need the glucose? Uh, if you're fasting or if you're very low carb or if you're carnivore, because you're you know if like my HbA1c is a hair over five. Uh, if I'm fasting a lot, if I drop below, if I stop fasting a lot, it drops below five. Yep. So that doesn't mean that I'm metabolically deranged and insulin resistant. It means that I doesn't mean I have pathological insulin resistance. It means that that's the problem with HbA1c is it's not factoring in a hyperinsulinemia and it's not factoring in what's being allocated to the brain mm. because it's simple. It's not as simple as just the fight or flight, right? Like when we are in a fasted state. People say, okay, well, you're stressed, so your glucose levels are elevating. Not necessarily. Like you could take someone that is calm and not having high levels of cortisol when they're fasting, and they're still going to develop this you know, physiological insulin resistance as a means to, again, protect the cell. Because that excess glucose, in a lot of ways, could actually travel to the liver. It could change and alter into what's called serum palmitate, which ultimately becomes a saturated fatty acid. And then that saturated fatty acid, that serum palmitate can affect insulin resistance. So mm -hmm. a lot of times you see, okay, the glucose is being allocated and going to the brain, which is one of the reasons that I theorize why you might have more brain energy on a fast. Now, I haven't seen data to back it up. It's purely a theory, but it's like maybe it's not just the ketones that are making our brain feel better when yeah. we're fasting. Maybe it's purely the reallocation of glucose and we're actually getting more glucose into the brain because the brain does like to run on glucose. Let's not deny yeah. that. Yeah. So if we're sparing glucose physiologically throughout the periphery and it's allocating to the brain, it would light up your brain more. I just haven't seen data to back it up. It's all just my own hypothesis. It's, a, it's really interesting. And maybe it's the combination of glucose with ketones because if you think about it yeah. when you and and this leads me to my next question but if you think about it when we go into a fasted state especially the longer fast we're seeing the dumping of the stored sugar and you're also seeing the rise of ketones so it's one of the only scenarios where we see ketones and glucose go up at the same time yeah. and maybe yeah. that's where the brain really thrives is in that moment what, yeah. what do you think of that yeah, no, totally. I think that makes a lot of sense. And you see that with a lot of the exogenous ketone research too, is that that's what makes it really unique is you are putting yourself in a very interesting state. Like, so the body having high levels, okay, I'll back up for a second. Having high levels of insulin and high levels of ketones at the same time is, I don't want to say it's impossible, but physiologically pretty much impossible, right? Like right. you cannot have this crazy spike in insulin from carbohydrates and also be producing ketones. So that's why like with exogenous ketones, it creates this physiologically impossible state. And that's why it works so well as an ergogenic aid, because like for a Tour de France athlete, it's working well because they are in a very unique, almost unnatural ability to utilize carbs and ketones at the literal same time. Uh, because insulin is present. So anytime you have like this high degree of overfeeding that is actually being used for fuel, not just overfeeding and being sedentary. That's why I'm like, if you're using exogenous ketones, don't just sit on your ass, like actually be doing something we'll because some. yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're in a hyper fed state, which cannot end well if you're not active, uh, no matter how you look at it. So fast forwarding to like the glucose side of things, that's also a very, the brain is the only tissue that's really going to be able to kind of run on both at the same time, because there are regions and portions of the brain that seem to prefer glucose and portions of the brain that seem to prefer ketones when available. So all of a sudden you have like glucose, a flux of glucose that's going into the brain. And you also have a flux of ketones going into the brain, satisfying whatever cells in the brain want to use whatever they want to use. So you've got this huge burst of energy in the brain simultaneously you know, this is again, another theory, but with glucose, okay, glucose is very oxidative, produces a lot of oxidative stress when you utilize it. That's not good, bad, or ugly. It's just the way it is, right? So my theory is that, okay, well, maybe ketones come into the brain to actually buffer some of the inflammatory response and the reactive oxygen species that comes as a result of the heightened levels of glucose in the brain. So to paint a picture of this, you've reallocated a lot of glucose to the brain. 
So in theory, you just created a lot more reactive oxygen species and a lot more reactive uh, or just oxidative stress in the brain. Ordinarily, that would not be a good thing. But since you have the presence of ketones, you are granted a little bit of amnesty and have some protection from said ketones to actually protect from the oxidative stress occurring from heightened glucose metabolism. Hopefully that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. And you actually have me thinking about exogenous ketones a little bit different because my standard line has been you don't use it when you after you eat because you're now going against a, a natural state of your body. But what if you, you know, what if you are, you know, you ate a big meal and you know your glucose is high and now you've got to go into a big meeting at work. Could you do some exogenous ketones to create that buffering so you get better mental clarity? Could we come in with exogenous ketones in those moments? And would that be harmful to our body's ability to make ketones when we're in a fasted state? Very interesting, interesting thought. I, I think it would depend on what you're eating. And I think, you know, first addressing it, like if you were to eat like a total crap meal and then do it, I don't think it would necessarily protect you from that. But if, if it was maybe even healthy yet high carb, yeah. in theory, maybe it could protect you from that. Um, is it going to affect your ability to endogenously produce ketones? Absolutely. But that's temporary. Like I don't, I haven't seen any evidence that shows that utilizing exogenous ketones are going to uh, like permanently stop ketogenesis. Like it's just for the time being, you know, you're, I always put it as simply as like, if you have a sink and you have the garbage disposal on in the sink and you put food down this in the sink, it's fine. It's going to go down the garbage disposal. But if you turn off the garbage disposal and you keep filling up the sink, whether it's fats, carbs, ketones, whatever, it's got to burn through whatever you're putting in. And ketones at the end of the day are, you know, what we are considering a fourth macronutrient, even in an exogenous mm. form, body's still going to have to burn through them. Yeah. So I can theorize that again, like the likelihood of storing the glucose from the food that you ate might be higher. So I, I am a pretty big proponent. I used to, I used to like not be a proponent of exogenous ketones at all. And then understanding research and working with SOCOM and working with kind of special operations with this and understanding military applications for it. I realized that, you know what, like, okay, I, I kind of opened my eyes to it a little bit. And then I realized like from an Esther side of things, like for performance, like that's where, that's where they really shine. Like if you train yourself to be really adapted to utilizing fats during a fuel, uh, during a, a workout as fuel. So you train fasted a lot, you train in a low carb state or even glycogen depleted a lot, then you're optimized for that. Then when it comes time for competition or it comes time to really level it up, then you go into that workout fueled with a carbohydrates and exogenous ketones because then you're giving your body two fuel sources that it's already adapted to using and it's like running on jet fuel so it's it's pretty brilliant. pretty profound it's brilliant it's, that is brilliant. Like you just, I, I thought I knew everything about ketones and now you just gave me a whole nother level. That was amazing. So I'm going to try it, especially with some of the high performers we work with is like putting them in doing some exogenous ketones in after a carbohydrate rich meal. It's, yeah, it's, it's, and it, again, it, it's questionable. Okay. So like Don D'Agostino, obviously super good friend of mine. He, he swears up and down that, uh, exogenous ketone esters, trigger a small insulin spike, uh, whereas ketone salts do not. So he's a huge proponent of salts and less so of esters. I, I tend to agree, however, from a performance or ergogenic side, if there is a small spike in insulin that still occurs from exogenous ketone esters, I don't think it matters if it's for activity because yeah. who cares if your insulin spikes a little bit because that's putting you into that once again. Uh, I, I think it could actually be advantageous where if it does spike insulin, maybe it's only helping, and we're talking a small spike, but it, maybe it's helping that cell uptake glucose even better. And if you're, again, active and you're moving hard and you're really going for performance, I, I think it's a non-issue. I, I don't think it matters at all. So interesting. Okay. And explain just for people the difference between salts and esters. Yeah. So uh, yeah, ketone ester is basically like a pure, uh, pure beta hydroxybutyrate in like an esterized form that can cross through the gut layer without the use of having to be bound to like a salt or a racemic salt. So like a ketone salt usually has to be bound to a sodium, potassium, or magnesium, or a combination of all three in different ratios. The downside with ketone salts is the likelihood of GI upset is pretty high. So for an athlete, that can be a big problem, yeah. especially in endurance athletes, because that's already like a large area of the complaints for athletes anyway is like, okay, mm -hmm. uh, they already deal with GI issues when they're working hard, let alone adding this into the mix. So 
I guess just to put it into context, I think ketone salts are tremendous if maybe you're fasting and you just want to have a little bit of satiety. I think ketone salts are great if you're just looking for a little bit of mental clarity. I think ketone esters are head and shoulders above salts for actual like immediate performance. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that I'm, I can't wait to try that out. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org, and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community, on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. Okay, now let's go. I want to go into fasting because we know fasting is an incredible tool for insulin resistance. But my question to you, based off all your research, what fasting length do you think is best? If I'm, if I know I'm insulin resistant, what do I need to lean into? Yeah, I'm, I've always been a, well, I shouldn't say always, but over the last couple of years, I've been a really big fan of like 18. I think 18 is a really mm -hmm. good number. And the reason I say that is I feel like 16 is like just when benefits are starting. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at 20, for the average person, if they're not adapted to it, they're starting to like creep into a length that might be a little long. Now, I'm all for 20-hour fast. I'm all for 22, 24. I'm all for it. But like generally, if you're looking at the whole population, like I think 18 hours is doable. And I think like after 15, 16 hours, you know, that's when the rate of gluconeogenesis starts to go up, which indicates that, you know, AMPK can go down and you're really starting to get the benefits of like the fast versus just the caloric deficit piece. Yeah. Uh, so I think generally I lean into like 18, like three or four days a week. Yeah. I've, uh, I recently had a conversation with Megan Ramos, you know, uh, Jason Fung's yeah. uh, the right hand gal in her, in his clinic. And sh they believe in that in their clinic and they're dealing with type two diet, severe type two diabetic situations that, um, even going into 36 and 48 hours for insulin resistance is she, they're actually not fans of the shorter fast. Um, they're more fans of 36 and 48 hours. And um, I think you got to play with it. But to your point, I think you got to go longer than 15 for sure. Yeah. If you're yeah, going to want, if you want to get a result. I totally agree on that. And I mean, I went through like a period for like eight months where I just did a once a week monk fast, 36 hours. And I felt phenomenal. Uh, it was, I mean, it worked really, really well. I mean, I, I still revert back to that time again, but you know, like personally for me right now, I usually fast like 18 to 21 hours, like yeah. two to three days a week. I, yeah. I, I keep it relatively, do it relatively sparingly. Um, you know, I, I might go into a period of time where I do it a little bit more, but yeah, if someone's just getting started, then, you know, sometimes jumping into a longer fast is actually, and doing that like once every couple of weeks, sometimes even easier. Cause it's just like a switch that people can yeah. flip. It's just on or off. And they just say, you know what, I'm just not going to eat stop eating at 5 p.m. tonight and not going to eat until the ne not the next day, but the next day in the morning. And it's just easy for people to turn the blinders on and do that rather than just get super granular about what they need to eat during their eating period and yada, yada. Yeah, I would agree. I've watched a lot of people do that where, and I used to be a, a proponent of like ease your way into the, into fasting. And then I've seen somebody who just all of a sudden goes into a three day water fast. They've never fasted before. 
they drop weight and their metabolism is completely different after that. So, and their food behaviors, all of that. It's, it's really pretty amazing. I always say like when I'm in the airport and I see people that are like in wheelchairs that are like super puffy and carrying extra weight, I, I look at those people and I think if I could take you home with me, and you could like live with me for a week and we could fast you and get you the right foods, you would see, have such a different experience with your body. And once you have a different experience with your body, your behaviors would change. So it's really interesting how that works. Um, Talk about food. So we all hope, I mean, we've talked a lot and I think my audience knows what foods to avoid, but let's talk about what foods you would add in to help yourself become more insulin sensitive. Is there a category of foods or spices that we, you know, what do we think of apple cider vinegar? Like, are, are these things actually working? Yeah. So, you know, there's categories of foods that blunt the glucose response. And certainly that helps from a lifestyle piece. And then there's categories of foods that at least in vitro and in some like mechanistic models and in, in various rodent model studies are showing a lot of promising effects for like beta cells in general, like helping the cells produce more insulin and do mm. so be more responsive and insulin receptors. And a big one is good old mono unsaturated fats. So like mm. things like, um, and then the interesting thing is like omega seven fats, which are in macadamia nuts. Like that's a tremendous source of just a combination of mono unsaturated and those omega-7s, which kind of make monounsaturated as well as omega-3s more available in the body. So omega-7s are quite a complicated fat to talk about. Yeah, the mon- I, yeah the- they're not talked about often. Yeah, it's and you know, there's not a whole lot of foods that have copious amounts of them. So macadamia nuts, I think, are a really powerful insulin resistance food. Uh, you know, lower sat. And again, I, I don't want to go um, what not to eat. And I know I've made some enemies by talking about this, but we do also have to like in for normal people that are not doing a ketogenic diet, like you should not be having like a ridiculous amount of saturated fat. Like I, I think it's like these 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 lines get blurred where you're like, okay, if you're doing keto, you're in a different ballpark. Like it's, things are different. But if you're not doing keto, like, unfortunately, the saturated fat discussion still does stand like epidemiological data and observational data doesn't lie. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of saturated fat, we're talking like upwards of like 30, 40% of your daily fat calories coming from saturated fat. There's very clear links to fatty liver, very clear links to insulin resistance. And it's just as profound as high glucose is. Yep. So that can scare people, make them think like, ah, I thought saturated fat was great. I thought butter was great. It is like we still need saturated fat. Like it's not a problem, but when you're not doing a low carb protocol and you're not a healthy person, there's a reason why the standard American diet is a problem. It's Mm. high processed, hyper palatable, high carb foods and high saturated fat. The two worst combinations that you could, I mean, the worst combination you could possibly have. So I usually recommend like, okay, take a look at your diet. How much saturated fat are you having? I'm not saying you need to be like Ansel Keys and go super low fat. I'm saying consider the ratio of fat. So I usually recommend, okay, look at your total. If if you're consuming 100 grams of fat a day, try not to consume more than 30 of that from saturated and let the rest Mm -hmm. come as much as possible from monounsaturated. Polyunsaturated is great too, but polyunsaturated fat, you know, usually coming in like um, alpha linoleic acid and stuff in plant forms might not be the best route either. I I tend to, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much, but you know, all obviously like I had talked talk to your, uh, Paul Saladino on my channel a while ago and he, yeah, he has very interesting things to say about, uh, seed oils as triggering the uh, cannabinoid receptors, like the actual, actually affecting our brain. And I know people rain on the parade with him a lot. Like they, people always have things to say about Paul and I know Paul is Paul. He's an inflammatory guy. That's how he is. Like he's an agitator. Yeah, that's yeah. his, that's his, his attitude and it's his brand. But I'm going to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt when it comes to stuff that's the brain because people like rain on him all the time because they're like, you're a psychiatrist. And then I'm like, when he's talking about endocannabinoids and when he's talking about the brain, he's actually someone I would listen to because he does know the brain. He's a, you know, excuse me, you know, clinically trained traditional medical doctor in terms of psychiatry. So he knows the brain. So when he talks about things like that, it makes sense, right? So without going off on a tangent, I know he's not the biggest fan of like monounsaturated fats, but he is a big fan of, uh, you know, reducing the seed oils and things like that. So it's relevant to this discussion. Another food that's rich in monounsaturated fats that I know Paul would agree with are straight up avocados, right? Avocados, mm-hmm. you're getting the combination of fiber win. and the monounsaturated. Yeah. It's a yeah. win-win. Yeah. Right. Avocados is everybody's hero. 
Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Like, I don't, I can't find anything wrong with an avocado. Yeah. And then I think, you know, the number one food is protein, period. I think that's one thing that we just all could stand to have more of. And it doesn't matter if you're plant-based, if you're vegan, if you're vegetarian, if you're pescatarian, like if you just prioritize protein, that's probably the best thing you can do for insulin resistance. Not only is it going to slow the kind of blood sugar response, but it's also just flat out good for our tissues. It's good for our muscle cells, which is going to be ultimately what allows us to suck up glucose in the first place. Yeah. Uh, apple cider vinegar. Yes, certainly. Uh, lemon water, same kind of category, you know, amylase inhibitors that kind of slow down the carbohydrate absorption, which if you're insulin resistant, like again, for a healthy person, people say, people question when I talk about that stuff, they're like, well, why would this matter? Why would I want to slow down the glucose response? If you are unfortunately one of the few people that is healthy and doesn't have an insulin resistance issue, you're right. Like maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's splitting hairs, but if you are insulin resistant, being able to slow down the glycemic response of a food gives your body a chance to actually produce the insulin in time so that whole system can calibrate again. Yeah. Oh my God. So brilliant, brilliantly said. Okay. What about, um, exercise? So if I, is all exercise going to make me insulin sensitive or are there certain exercise routines I need to do to really facilitate that sensitivity process better? Yeah. I think, you know, head and shoulders resistance training is best for insulin resistance. Uh, that being said, that doesn't mean that you neglect cardio. Like there's a lot of myth out there saying that, uh, you know, doing cardio or aerobic work is only good for the cardiovascular system. I mean, yes, that's true. It's good for the cardiovascular system, which has huge downstream effects, but there's also a lot of evidence that suggests that the more aerobic capacity you have and the more ability to do cardio in the first place actually helps your ability to build muscle and helps your ability to recover and helps your ability to do resistance training in the first place and to develop the tissues that you need. So resistance training is best as far as glucose metabolism is concerned, but that doesn't mean like if I had to, if people had to say like, okay, you have to pick one or the other, I would kind of split it down the middle. I'd say, I still want you to resistance train, but with really short rest periods. And I want you to still be getting your heart rate up. The caveat there is, okay, well then, yeah, you're not able to push it to the max because you're, you're breathing heavy and you're exhausted. Okay. But are you trying to be a bodybuilder and squeeze every little 5% of muscle growth or because hypertrophy muscle growth is going to come from muscles, like stimulating the muscle and then having enough protein. It's that simple. Um, so resistance train, just keep the rest period short and get your cardio if in that way, if you're short on time. Yeah. And do you feel like I was listening to a lecture recently with, uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and she was talking about how there were two ways to improve muscle strength. Uh, one is obviously, as we know, through weightlifting, but then it also is through activating uh, the protein sensors, amino acid sensors in the muscle, getting at least 30 grams of protein. She's a big fan of one gram of protein uh, for every uh, pound of body weight that you want to be. Um, do you feel like when we go to build muscle that we it's the same uh, tool to lift weights as to eat protein? Will those increase muscle in the same way or do they operate differently? I think they operate somewhat different. I mean, they, they, they come together. It's like kind of like a two ropes that are twisted, right? Like right. it's they're they're very important and they work together and one doesn't exist without the other in certain ways. But the other thing is that like more and more research, both from the cognitive side and from just the purely like muscle side shows that stimulation is the most important thing. Like stimulating Mm -hmm. the muscle is what's going to allow you to keep the muscle probably more so than diet. Now, that being said, eventually, if you're stimulating the muscle and you're not getting enough protein, yes, you're going to end up in a negative nitrogen balance. You're going to have less, more muscle protein breakdown than you have synthesis. But it's it's a little bit more hairy than just that. So I had, you know, Dr. Tommy Wood on my channel who's such an interesting guy. And like he, he just published a paper surrounding a cognitive stimulus, right? It kind of in the same vein, he's done other work surrounding muscle stimulus, but cognitive stimulus too. Like the biggest thing that we can do to stave off cognitive decline is actually use our brains, right? Is doing puzzles, doing things like that is if you don't use it, you lose it. And even from a fasting standpoint, it makes so much sense that when we're in a caloric deficit or when we're fasting, that that is when we should be moving because mm. that is the, the least opportune time for our body to break down muscle tissue. It makes a lot of sense that we would actually be 
performing better in a fasted state. And it's actually an ideal time. Like why would the body want to break down muscle at that point in time? Mm -hmm. It's more inclined to keep it as long as you're stimulating. So especially when you're fasting and your calories are low, because the muscle stimulation effect really counts for something. And you see that, like I've seen it with myself, just with fasting. Like if I fast aggressively for a couple of weeks and I resistance train pretty aggressively during that time, I don't lose muscle. I don't lose strength, but I do lose fat. And so, I mean, how do you explain that? It's, I think there's a lot that we don't know about muscle and how we retain it and how we build it. And right now we chalk it up to stimulus and protein, but I think there's a lot more going on that we don't know. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, one of the first times I realized that connection between fasting and muscle is I was in a yoga class and this woman who was 10 years older than me came up to me and she's like, hey, I've been doing yoga with you uh, for the last couple of years and you're really growing a lot of muscle. What are you doing? And at that time I was doing so much fasting. I was all kinds of fasting and I kind of chalked it up to, well, maybe you can just see the muscle more, but I, you know, to your point, why would the body break down muscle in a starvation state? If we're going to call it that, because it has to go find food. So it needs to be stronger. So when you hear people say, well, my muscles shrunk uh, while I was fasting, do you think that was just glucose that got released? Is it a, is it a perception that it shrunk and that didn't actually shrink? It absolutely could be. I mean, when you're, especially if you're not adapted to fasting and the first time you, you know, first time you fast and your body doesn't spare glycogen very well. So it just depletes everything and you flatten out. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's not like the muscles eating itself or breaking itself down for nutrients in the fasted state. I mean, maybe on a three day water fast, it might be, but on a 24 hour OMAD kind of situation, you're literally cleaning the glucose. And then, you know, if you follow that up with some protein, are you still a a big believer of like breaking a fast with protein, especially after a workout to stimulate mTOR? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. I think, I mean, that's, I mean, insulin sensitivity is still at an all-time high at the end of the fast, and it's also very high at the end of a workout. So like combining those two just works really, really well. Now, when it comes down to just fasting in general and sort of the, how much protein do you break down during a fast? I mean, it, it all depends, right? But I would argue that if you took someone that was fasting and sitting on a couch all day, that then they might atrophy. But I'm a firm believer that if you don't use it, you lose it. And if you use it, your body will do what it can to preserve it because it deems it necessary. It makes a lot of logical sense, right? Yeah. Like if I'm, if I'm out actively moving while I'm fasting, my body is saying, oh, okay, well, this tissue is relevant because clearly mm-hmm. he's using it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to do what it can to preserve that. Yeah, because it makes so much sense. Okay, let's talk about hacks. The last thing around insulin resistance, you know, we've got cold plunges and red light. We have supplements. Um, I've even, you know, I've got a hyperbaric uh, oxygen chamber um, and I've done some really interesting research on the metabolic upside of, of oxygen. Uh, what hacks do you know or do you like to, if somebody's doing all the things? And I leave it at the last thing because I feel like everybody wants to go to the hack first. But, yeah. you know, we've got to do the work like we've talked about. But beyond, once I'm doing that work, do I have other tools to speed up my insulin sensitivity? Yeah. Um, I mean, recently I've been a big fan of like a couple days a week eating some carbohydrates like intra-workout. Now, like during my workout, right? Oh. Like So I'll eat a little bit of watermelon intra-workout. And the reason behind that is it's that is a, a, a way for you to be able to get your carbs and not effectively store them. But B you do potentially kind of increase the uptake of glucose into the cell. Now it's insulin independent, meaning when your muscle is contracting, you'll suck glucose into a cell without insulin being needed. So that means I could eat that watermelon like during my workout or in between sets and the likelihood of it ever even requiring much insulin is pretty low because it's getting sucked up immediately. I'm eating it. it the, the S-glute one transporter is bringing it into the, into the bloodstream and then it's being burned. Now, do I lose fat loss effect from that workout? possibly who knows like we could talk about that but that's not what i'm after i'm after being like okay now i'm able to sort of condition my cell to be able to still utilize glucose but i'm doing it in a way with very little risk so that's sort of a hack to be able to have your cake and eat it too like it doesn't mean that you walk around the gym like dripping pizza and 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 like watermelon everywhere but like you know if you're like doing a little workout at home or something like that and you're like you know i really want to have some watermelon but you will find like and it's actually dom Agostino that taught me that in theory originally. And then I just took it and ran with it and noticed that, wow, my workouts actually 
perform pretty, I do pretty well compared to like, if I were to have carbs, maybe an hour before a workout, it's like at that rate and the carbs are already halfway through glycogen synthesis and, and I'm not really getting that active ability of them. Okay. But moving into sort of other hacks, uh, let me say one thing on that. I'm thinking this through and to your point of your pointing, you're telling the body what to focus on. If you do the watermelon, you're up, you up, you're upping glucose, the muscle, it's going to go immediately to the muscle because you're in the middle of a workout. And so now the muscle is going to be able to perform a little bit better. It's going to grow itself stronger. You're going to have more insulin sensors to be able for that next meal to be able to absorb it and store glucose again. So that makes actual really brilliant logic. Yeah, it's, it's been fun to experiment with. And I don't do it with every workout. Like I love my fasted workouts. So, you know, I'd say, you know, three to four days a week, I still train fasted. And then a couple days per week when it's generally more like hypertrophy focused, like it's more muscle building type stuff. And I'm not saying like, Hey, I'm doing this workout for fat loss. No, I'm doing this workout to get stronger. I'm not as concerned about being in a fasted state during it. I'm going to play around and have some carbs and have some fun. Uh, So that's a, that's a big thing. Yeah, I'm also, I'm a big fan of of cold exposure. I feel like, you know, anytime you can increase brown fat, you're increasing the potential to be able to kind of upregulate glucose uptake. And there's evidence that more brown fat leads to, you know, less glucose circulating. So that's always a good thing. Um, I'm always a, it's kind of the same generic stuff, but I am a huge fan of sauna. I do feel like Mm. from a mitochondrial dysfunction side, like sitting in, I, I would take a sauna over a cold plunge any day of the week. That's just my preference. I just love that. Um, you know, I do feel like there are definitely metabolic advantages there because your body does massively increase glucose during that time and it has to find a way to effectively deal with it. So I feel like you do kind of train your body. I don't do infrared. I do dry. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of dry. I mean, I don't not like infrared. I just, uh, I prefer dry sauna because I like to get really hot. I mean, I probably do what may not be the best recommended thing, but I really, you know, a lot of the Swedish and Finnish people, like they really like to get them up well over you know, north of 200 degrees. So I kind of rigged my sauna to get up to like 215, 220. And I just sit in it for 10 or 15 minutes. So I do relatively short stints at very high heat. Just make sure you wear a sauna cap because you will burn your hair. It yeah. will like, I noticed when I was like, oh shoot, my hair is getting brittle. And then yeah, the, the guys over at Nordic Sauna were like, why are you, that's why they make sauna caps. It's, otherwise you're oh. going to fry your hair. <laughs> oh, interesting. That's interesting. Okay. I would agree with you on sauna for sure. And cold plunges just that not, yeah, you not, you know, I don't gravitate to cold plunges. Yeah. <laughs> so well, there's, there's kind of weird, like it's mixed, right? Like, like cold plunge is good to a certain degree, but it's a hormetic stressor that you can take too far too. Yeah. So, and it's like people like I cold plunge every morning. I don't, I don't know if that's good, honestly. I, I, I don't, I'm not here to say it's bad, but I don't know if it's good to cold plunge every day. I think it should be something that maybe you maybe do a few times per week. I don't know. I just don't, it is still, a, it just still does trigger reactive oxygen species. And, you know, like, it's just like fasting every day. It's like, you shouldn't fast when you feel like you're getting sick, right? Like it's, that's it, just at least my two cents. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Any other hacks? Or what, and what about supplements? You got a lot of people buying berberine. Um, you know, a lot of people are going into spermidine for autophagy. Like, do we cinnamon? I've heard. What do we think of these? Are they yeah. going to help us with insulin resistance? I think good old like vitamin B1, like benfodiamine is a really powerful yeah. one. Uh, that's not talked about enough. I did a video on it like months ago and it kind of exploded and I think uh, it garnered a lot of interest. I think it's, you know, it's benfodiamine is required to basically in under high glucose load. So it's not just like required for just glucose uptake in the first place. It's required to kind of help manage when glucose is high. So I feel like if you're suffering from high glucose, vitamin B1 is something you could definitely, and benfodiamine is a fat soluble form. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't just get excreted and you don't just pee it right out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Amazing. So many, it's funny. Just when I think I, I know everything I can know about insulin resistance. Now you like have got my brain really thinking differently. So this was amazing. I really appreciate it. And here's what I'm going to, I'm going to go completely off the insulin topic. Uh, what we've been doing in the Resetter podcast uh, this year is really uh, emphasizing what people are grateful for. So do you, do you have a gratitude practice, a daily gratitude practice? And um, yep. if so, what is it? And what are you grateful for this year? Yeah, every night when we put our kids to bed, we call it thankfuls for them. We just say, what are you, you, know, what are you thankful for? And my little two-year-old, she's so funny. Like, she's so intense with it. Like, she puts, she points her finger, like, an inch from your face and like so aggressively says, what are you thankful for? Like she's Aww. like, it's like a drill sergeant. Like she's serious about it. She I takes it very it. seriously. 
but we, uh, we definitely do it. And, you know, and sometimes it's frustrating for them. Sometimes they don't want to do it. And sometimes they get awkward and shy about it. But now it's become this thing where they just expect it. And they're like, you know, it's, it's time for bed. And we're like, you know, daddy, it's time to come do thankfuls. You know, it's like, oh, and so it's a really, that. it's just a good practice. And sometimes, you know, you fake it till you make it sometimes, right? Like you sometimes, sometimes there's days where you're like, I'm, I'm grateful for nothing. Like I, I feel like crap today. Today was a bad day. But then when you stop and you look at your kids in the eyes and you look at, you know, and I'm just like, and they say that they're so thankful for the simplest thing, you know? I'm yes. so, yeah. Like, you know, I'm so thankful that, you know, we saw a, a bird at the park today. I'm like, right. that's, you know, something like that. It's just like, then it makes you stop and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful you said that, you know? And it's, so that's a very good thing. And then, you know, right now, you know, I'm grateful, obviously, for, you know, for my family. I feel like in a world where social media can be pretty dark and be pretty lonely and scary sometimes just because you're just, you're so much inbound of positive and negative. And, yes. you know, it really just allows me, like when I look at my kids, I look at my wife and remember that that is absolutely what matters. Um, you know, I'm also thankful for, it sounds funny to hear me say, I, mean, I still, I'm thankful for advances in modern like surgical medicine and things like mm-hmm. that recently with my wife's surgery. And I'm still like, I'm still blown away. I know like sometimes I have negative things to say about our healthcare system because it's, it frustrates me. But at the end of the day, sometimes like our technological advances in surgery and in certain things with Western medicine, I have to stop and pause and still thank my lucky stars that we have what we have today. You know, like with my wife's recent surgery, if that was, you know, she would be in so much pain if it wasn't for that. So I try to be grateful for things like that too. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You know, I think where we've fallen apart in the healthcare system is in chronic disease. And you could almost look at Amber's situation as more of an acute situation that needed needed a a go-to, a quick go-to. So yeah, I would a thousand percent. But when we're looking at a chronic problem, this is where we can't lose sight of lifestyles. So hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Where do people find you? I hopefully you all know that he's on YouTube, but where else (laughs) do people find you? Yep. Uh, yeah. YouTube, just type in my name. And then uh, Instagram, also just type in my name, uh, thomasdelauer.com, just if you want to join my email list, things like that. Other than that, I'm I'm uh, kind of everywhere. Yeah. I love it. And I just, I, I, I continue to be inspired by your YouTube channel. I, you know, I look ahead and go, wow, like what you've accomplished on YouTube as somebody who's putting YouTube videos out there, it's, it's pretty profound. And of all the social media platforms, YouTube's the harshest. Uh, the comments are really gnarly. Yeah. So I applaud you with 3 million followers to, you know, be sticking in there and, and continuing to educate us all. So thank you, Thomas. This was amazing. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is.